This is the AmbiView Audio Experience. Hey everybody, this is your man Tim, and today's episode is on the entrepreneur's endgame, control or wealth. We'll discuss the history of business, wealth versus power, and conclude with a short case study on PitchBook. So stick and stay, and let's get after it. The end game hasn't changed much over the last 20,000 years. Successful entrepreneurs still enjoy the same two fates, control or wealth. Sexiness has changed over time. You know, for the ladies, you have curvaceous, modest, heroin chic. Each has kind of had their moment in the sun. And for the fellas, you have prominent brow, chiseled jaw, clean shaven. It's evolving daily. So when you think about it, what we've done is we've successfully sculpted and molded sexiness for generations to finally create the modern day entrepreneur. Entrepreneurship is one of the hottest topics of conversation. It's very sexy. Think about it. How many folks pitch you that idea that's gonna change everything? Probably countless, because we all wanna bask in the winner's circle, myself included. But over time, we discover that paradise is actually found in the process. You see, it's the chase. That's where you earn your stripes. Are you chasing wealth? In this context, money, target, 100 mil? Or are you chasing control? The buck stops with you. We're gonna look at this in two absolutes and successful entrepreneurs have one of two fates, control or wealth. Whichever you choose to maximize will help to clarify your path to the winner's circle. Now we're gonna do three things and then get you on your way. Number one, briefly discuss the history of entrepreneurship over the years. Number two, we're gonna understand why it's important to know whether you're maximizing for control or maximizing for wealth within your business. And then number three, we're gonna share the story of PitchBook from the perspective of the entrepreneur that built it. We caught up with founder and CEO, John Gabbard for an inside peek behind the curtain. Now that we're sufficiently warmed up, let's sprint backwards in time. Some 20,000 years ago, hunter-gatherer tribes would trade obsidian for other needed goods such as animal skins. This early form of entrepreneurship and basic exchange continued for an exhaustive amount of time until we finally hit 10,000 BC, the start of the agricultural revolution where the likes of fishermen and garment makers ran the show. Moving on, international trade between cultures along trade routes and the exchange of ideas fueled entrepreneurship for the next several thousand years. Then, two big things happened in 2000 BC. Iron was discovered and the concept of money entered society. Over the next few millennia, weapons trading exploded and whomever controlled iron could dominate other civilizations. This led to the birth of empires, Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire, Persian Empire, and others. Simultaneously, money created a new medium of exchange, a beautiful alternative to the barter system. Fast forward to 475 AD, the concept of marketplaces began to gain popularity, leading to the growth in banking systems to finance purchases. Then, somewhere around the mid-1500s, mercantilism ruled the day. 
Countries accumulated as much wealth as possible, and imperialism was the bell of the ball. The prototypical entrepreneur during this time was either a merchant or an explorer. Jumping to the 1800s, machines fueled the entrepreneurial spirit and capitalism began to overpower the world. Welcome to the free market economy, my friends. And here we are, post-World War II, where the modern entrepreneur is global. Marketplaces, competition, supply and demand are presented on a global stage. Now, the modern era brought a certain celebrity status for successful entrepreneurs. They're icons. Mark Zuckerberg, Oprah Winfrey, Jeff Bezos, and others have acquired substantial control and enormous wealth. Now, in fairness, wealth is relative. You know, you have happiness, peace of mind, purpose. That's all wealth. But for the context of our conversation, we're defining wealth as money. Target 100 mil. Now, the Zuckerbergs of the world have amassed vast wealth while remaining at the helms of the companies that they founded. You know, this is remarkable because the majority of entrepreneurs who start the business as founder CEO are typically not running the show by year three. Just think about that. Just think about that. What would you do if someone came into your business and told you to just go kick rocks? Now there's this common misconception that every entrepreneur wants to start and run a business because they want to make, you know, buckets of money. This is not necessarily true. There's another desire besides amassing great wealth that is very important, and that is to create and lead an organization. So when you think about it, each decision that you make as an entrepreneur is a decision between deciding to maximize money or maximize control. Let's look at the initial step of starting the business. When the entrepreneur is, you know, giving birth to this beautiful baby, there may be just a tinge of overconfidence. Hey, I know the vision. I know the market opportunity. I built the business model from scratch. I understand the end users and all the customers and everything and on and on and on. The overconfidence can create blinders when you're the most vulnerable, especially if you haven't already decided on a path for control or a path for wealth. Think about it. When are you the most vulnerable? One, when your business is on life support. And two, when it's growing like crazy. Scenario one, life support. You've tapped out your savings, your friends, your family, your entire personal network. And your vow to never accept any venture money was just more of a cute slip of the tongue in jest. You really didn't mean it, did you? Of course not. Now, after begging for some time, lightning seems to strike and you find that deal that's a game changer. But that deal carries a hefty price. You must surrender control of your company. Now, if wealth is your winner's circle, this is okay. It's new life, new resources, and a new opportunity. But if control is your winner's circle, then this likely could mark the death of a dream. Scenario two, growing like crazy. You killed it. The business is in beast mode like Marshawn Lynch on that one yard line about to win the Super Bowl. Your business is on a glide path to unprecedented growth. Why in the world would they want to send you into exile now? It makes no sense. Well, maybe it does. You see, getting the business up and running and the product to market is one thing and it's great, but sustaining that success requires managerial chops. Building sales channels, financial reporting tools, customer support, all that's a bear. 
And let's say you're a product-specific founder. You might not necessarily have the organizational skills to get that done. So, you get hit with that awkward breakup call. Tim, fantastic product launch. And now, you're fired. In either scenario, the loss of control is a cruel fate if it's unexpected. Investors know that they have the maximum leverage right before they give you money, so use that to your advantage if you're on the wealth trajectory and demand a lucrative offer. If you're on the control side of the house, then your emotional resolve needs to be off the charts in order to handle both of these vulnerable scenarios. Bootstrapping or building your business without heavy outside funding is a very difficult feat, but it can be done. Again, if you've identified which fate to maximize, you have a very good shot at powering through these vulnerable scenarios, should they occur. Now to ensure that we're all on the same page, let me be explicit. When would you choose wealth as your fate? Yes, the obvious answer is, I'm gonna choose wealth when I want the most valuable company possible. But digging deeper, you actually choose wealth when you perceive the value of the market opportunity to be substantial. If I think my market opportunity is $60 million, then I likely wouldn't choose wealth to maximize. But if I perceive my market opportunity to be $600 billion, then I'm taking every meeting in the conference room that I can get. The financial backers, investors, would enjoy a nice slice of equity in your company in exchange for the operational expertise, the financing, the influential network, you name it. If the stars align, who knows? Your business may take off and you may end up printing money. Not bad. Now, when would you choose control as your fate? When you want credit for the success and you want decision-making power. It's important for you to have a hand in moving the needle. For those maximizing control, no amount of wealth would make you feel successful if you were forced to surrender your empire. You see, choosing between control and wealth is a deeply personal decision. What does success mean to you and why are you becoming an entrepreneur in the first place? The sooner you can answer those two questions, the clearer your path to the winner's circle will be. Finally, let me share a story to drive all of this home. We caught up with John Gabbert, the founder and CEO of PitchBook, for a unique perspective. Our tale begins the summer of 07 in New York City, big city of dreams. Yours truly had just graduated college and was preparing for my investment banking debut. And then this happened. The Great Recession. Everything was in meltdown mode and the financial sector was taking a lot of heat. Who would be bold enough to start a financial services firm in an industry that was on life support? His name is John Gabbard. It is truly my great, great pleasure to welcome PitchBook and its founder and CEO, John Gabbard. Well, good morning. Since its launch in 2007, PitchBook has become an indispensable source for data, research, and tech that covers the capital markets. Venture capitalists, equity investors, salespeople, and an ever-spanning list of customers have grown to rely on PitchBook's platform and high-quality information. But where did it all start? PitchBook grew from an idea that John had while working at Venture One Corporation. Over the course of nine years, John experienced the full gamut of what the organization had to offer. At the time, Venture One had a private equity newsletter, a directory of alternative investment providers, and a venture company database. 
Now John's idea was to essentially combine everything into a single product. Take the venture database, add the list of investor providers to the database, and finally offer them the deal data that was contained in the newsletter. The market need was there, so John essentially pitched this idea to Venture One Management. Unfortunately, they were not interested, so instead of playing politics, John said thank you very much, left the company, and decided to start PitchBook. Now for a kid who grew up on a farm in Northern California, John had a knack for fixing things and for hard work. He put himself through college working call center gigs, and he didn't necessarily want to become an entrepreneur. He simply found a problem and decided to fix it. In the early days of PitchBook, John racked up 80 to 100 plus hour work weeks and spent over 20 months away from his wife and children. Now, this took a huge emotional toll, but John was very, very persistent and knew that the business required this, but also required outside capital investment as well. Therefore, he pitched to over 200 people and ultimately landed 18 investors between 2007 and 2009 and raised $2.75 million to get the product off the ground. This was very difficult because this was in the heart of the financial crisis, the Great Recession. So it wasn't the idea that people were opposed to, it was more along the timing of the ask. Nonetheless, John recognized the vast market opportunity and pushed through. By the summer of 2009, the economy began to emerge from recession and John could feel the tide shifting. But PitchBook was down to its last $22,000 and needed more money to keep going. John had recently read an article about Morningstar expanding its business portfolio and he knew that the product he was developing would help them in their new market segment. So John did what he does best. He pitched. He called Morningstar's main line and asked for Joe Mansuto, the founder and CEO. Now, Joe wasn't available, but John left the voicemail and they ultimately connected. Mansuto was thoroughly impressed and offered to invest $3 million in a pitch book. Naturally risk averse, John often watched expenses closely and didn't believe there was a need to raise that much capital. So he asked for $600,000 in an effort to keep the company lean. Ultimately, they settled on $1.2 million, the minimum amount that Morningstar was willing to offer. Needless to say, a good portion of the capital remained unspent. PitchBook performed very well over the next several years and had an ideal source funding its impressive growth, loyal customers. Hundreds of millions poured in from an expanding customer base as PitchBook unlocked new market segments by adding more data and functionality to its platform. The company was soaring and yet there remained a little bit of uncertainty on the horizon. And that was the 2016 presidential election. At the time, it was relatively unclear which direction the financial winds would blow with a new POTUS in office. Morningstar had been an early investor and owned roughly 20% of PitchBook, and John had long considered them a great partner and the best home for PitchBook. So he believed that the prudent thing to do was to sell the remaining ownership of the company to Morningstar. So, in December 2016, PitchBook was acquired by Morningstar for a total value of $225 million. Since the acquisition, PitchBook has maintained its brand and identity and continues to thrive under John's leadership. They continue to expand the platform through product launches and integrations and truly believe that Morningstar was the best acquirer they could have imagined. While John is very happy to be financially secure, like many entrepreneurs, it was very, very, very difficult to surrender the controls. Reflecting back on the time of the acquisition, 
He recalls that he probably cried more than he smiled. Control or wealth? The two fates of the successful entrepreneur. Once you identify the one that you want to maximize and really get after it, then you will be unstoppable. With that, my friends, it's been my pleasure and thank you for listening to this episode. As always, please remember to share it and follow us. Also, be sure to check out the video version of this episode on YouTube as we have some great visuals to drive these concepts home. Keep grinding, stay safe, and I'll see you next week. Your biggest fan, Tim.